good morning, good night, and everything else in between. What's up guys, it's Denny, let's get into the specials. HGTV is set to debut a new series called A Very Brady Renovation. This series will feature the $3.5 million renovation of the home used for the exterior shots of the Brady Bunch. HGTV executives say that this is a story of a man named Brady who was busy with four boys of his own, and two of those boys later became the Property Brothers. Speaking of the Brady Bunch, New England Patriots quarterback Tom Brady has reportedly asked new teammate Antonio Brown to move into his house while he gets settled in Boston, proving once and for all that Tom Brady and Giselle are the real-life look-back meme. Guys, in other news, dozens of Google employees say that they were retaliated against for reporting sexual harassment, which should surprise no one that the company that invented incognito mode would like to erase their quote-unquote browsing history. The NBA and Nike are reportedly set to ban the ninja headbands that gained popularity last season. Those with knowledge of the situation claim that a bunch of middle-aged white guys decided that it was culturally insensitive, and when asked who it was insensitive against, they just shrugged and went on sipping their $20 lattes. In a recent interview, Rosario Dawson said that dating Cory Booker is like dating Captain America, which is accurate considering that everybody knows Captain America is the least popular Avenger. Guys, and finally it's Fashion Week here in New York, which hopefully means the end of the year of the fanny pack and the return of the Velcro wrist wallet. Free the Velcro! Live from New York! You are listening to the sometimes glamorous, always cantankerous, borderline magnanimous audio art of the new James Brown. Move over, Charlie Brown. There's a new kid in town. Whether it's 5 o'clock while you are or not, you better take your shot because a later Friday big show is coming in hot. Welcome on into the show. It's later. You made it. I made it. Oh, man, we made it. We made it. We made it. Welcome. I'm Denny Gallagher. We got a great one for you today. Oh, my goodness. Howard Beck, Bleacher Report, senior NBA writer, is here. That's right. You clicked on it. You clicked on the play button. You wanted Howard Beck. You're about to get him in minutes. I promise you that. He's seen a lot of drama. He covered the Kobe Shaq Lakers. He's covered the Knicks. And now he's a senior writer with Bleacher Report, the full 48 podcast. Check it out on iTunes. Well, you know, after you're done listening to this, of course. But Howard Beck, awesome spot. Love talking to him. And in honor of our guest today, Howard Beck, his favorite band's a car. So our song of the day today to play in our intrepid reporter, our intrepid guest today. Great conversation. Little Just What I Needed. Howard Beck. The cars, just what I needed, and you are listening to later. I don't mind you coming here, wasting all my time. Does it irk you at all that you went from UC Davis's most famous grad and then Patriot Act, Daily Show Happens, and how some Minaj kind of comes in? Here. And the journalism. The journalism would be the part that would piss me off the most. Like, come on, man. Like, stay in your lane, right? Stick to sports, no. <laughs> stick, stick to comedy. Stick to comedy. Stick to comedy. Someone else stick to comedy. Uh, he's he's uh, he's one of the people I'm, I, I want to chase. I have not reached out yet, but I, I want to get Hasan Minaj on on the pod because 
Uh, I know he's a big-time Kings fan. He's funny as hell. He's talented as hell. And he is a UC Davis grad and a Davis native, in fact. Um, so I, 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 would, I would love to, uh, to connect with him at some point. Um, I, I will just, I'll dispute the premise, though. There's no way I was UC Davis's most famous grad before he, he came along. I would, I would love to, to, to think so. My ego would love to think so. Um, but there's, uh, there's no way. He, he definitely is now. Um, he's, you know, by a long shot. Um, but no, I mean, you know, they actually, UC Davis, while, though it was a div- Division II football school for all of my time there and, and for, you know, quite a while, it's now, I think it's one double A. Um, but Rolf Benerska, Hall of Famer in the NFL, um, Mike Morosky, um, uh, uh, shit, what the, I'm missing, I'm missing the big one, uh, the, the former Jets quarterback. Ken O'Brien. There we go. <laughs> Ken, Ken O'Brien. Chris Peterson, uh, big-time college football coach. Yeah. He was a former uh, UC Davis quarterback. So there been there were a bunch of Bo Eason. So there, was a, there were a bunch of, of guys who, who at least made it uh, to the NFL um, from UC Davis who were definitely bigger than me. There used to be way, – way back before there were um, all these uh, celebrity chefs – and all these celebrity cooking shows, like before there was a food network <laughs> and there were just like these little specialty cooking shows, there was something called Yan Can Cook. And I think it's Martin Yan is his name. And that one time, Martin Yan of Yan Can Cook, I think, was the most famous UC Davis grad who was not a football player. How did Brooklyn become the East Coast mecca of NBA Twitter, NBA blogosphere how did that all begin because i have a feeling you were probably part of the evolution if you will how did brooklyn become the center of the universe or the basketball twitter universe at least it's like la and brooklyn right i mm, i don't know if that's the case i just found out listening to chris mannix's podcast that rohan not carney god i'm never gonna get his last name right is now in la Hmm. um people keep moving to la it feels like uh, Brooklyn, I don't know, like, aside from me, I don't know that anybody else is actually based here in terms of NBA media. Um, you know, like the Nets are now the center, one of the centers right. of the basketball universe. Uh, although it, it's kind of a, it's kind of asterisked, right. you know, until Kevin Durant actually starts <laughs> suiting up and playing games for the Nets. Like, it's hard to look at the Nets as being, um, center of anything. Like they're going to be good, but not a contender yet. Yeah. So, um, but um, yeah, me, Kyrie, and KD. If, if we want to say that Brooklyn's well, the center of the NBA universe, it's the three of us. Zach Lowe's out there, right? No, no, Zach's in Queens. Zach, well, okay, okay. You know, for most of the people listening to this, Queens and uh, <laughs> Queens and Brooklyn have 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 a lot in common. Well, with that, in fairness, yeah. to, 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 in your defense, it's the same landmass, right? Like it's one of those imaginary lines, and they're both <laughs> connected to Long Island. So technically, if we're talking about like just you know geographically, like it's all part of Long Island. Although Long Island is kind of more of a place than <laughs> yeah. an actual uh, just physical manifestation. So anybody who lives in Brooklyn, we're not going to say we're in Long Island because that's a whole other thing, like right. culturally and everything else, like. It's, it's a different thing. And it's always on Long Island and not in Long Island. Meanwhile, over here in Jersey City, we're trying <laughs> to make this the unofficial six barrel. We'll let you know when that catches on. You invented Hoboken also. I don't. I, I, was, I spent a year there, a good year. <laughs> so, okay. But you grew up in, 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 in Oakland, right? In like the Bay Area? Born in Oakland, grew up primarily in San Jose. Okay. And yeah, so my sports roots 
Um, and then just my general roots are, yeah, are all kind of Bay Area based. I mean, I grew up, you know, uh, the Warriors sucked. So I wasn't like a huge Warriors fan, even though I ended up, you know, becoming an NBA beat writer. Like my, my um, sports upbringing had more to do with the 49ers and Joe Montana and Dwight Clark and mm. Jerry Rice and Roger Craig, Ronnie Lott. Like that crew is what got me hooked on sports and, and and that was the root of my fandom and that was the root of me reading the newspaper every day and just becoming like a, a you know massive consumer of like sports media um and then you know look the the giants had their time during the time that the a's had their time i was more of an a's guy than a giants guy um loved conseco mcguire um and so yeah the the, the bay area is kind of where like everything kind of leads back to for me and like those are those are my formative experiences you said football baseball when did basketball kind of come into play when you got like a job or was that always kind of an because you know like like the warriors weren't like a thing thing until recently i mean like they had had like their moments but a lot of like other franchises they kind of had had the way when did basketball kind of come in the forefront of your mind yeah i mean just for context so in the bay area in in the 80s when i was growing up you know, the, the Niners were dominant, you know, both as a, as a team competitively and just in the marketplace. Right. Like the, 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 they absolutely dominated. The Raiders left in 82 or whatever, and the Raiders still had a presence even though they left. I don't understand Raider fans rooting for them <laughs> no matter where they go, but whatever. Um, the Niners were the, were the dominant team in the marketplace, and the Giants and A's were big. Uh, the Sharks didn't arrive until, until later when I was in college. Uh, or maybe out of college, and so in in that in that sphere, the Warriors. While there was always this like solid basketball uh, like uh, following in the Bay Area, and the Warriors always had great support, even despite all of the cr- you know crappy years that they went through. Um, they just weren't on the radar that that much mm. until the Run TMC era, mm. you know Hardaway Mullen and uh, and Mitch Richmond and. So I remember being really jazzed about that team. Like I remember being into that team. I remember just having kind of like a vague. And in fact, so my if, if you want to like look at formative um, moments, I can't say that like I became a Warriors fan because of this because I was I, I was never really that big of a, of a of a Warriors fan growing up. But I won a shoe store contest when I was like nine years old. Maybe one of these things where you fill out a little thing and you put it in a you know fishbowl or whatever at the front counter at this shoe store in San Jose where I grew up and they drew my name and the winner of this draw was, uh, got to be ball boy for a day. So I was ball boy for a day for the Warriors. And this is when, uh, Robert Parrish, this is how old I am. Robert Parrish was still on the Warriors. Uh, and it was, I think Parrish and John Lucas, um, if I'm recalling correctly. And I, you know, I ball boy for a day. I pushed the broom around in the key, during you know dead ball situations or whatever or timeouts i rebounded pre-game it's, that's really the only memory of it i have but the warriors sucked and so like you know no i wasn't like never really into into the warriors and so uh in the 90s like everybody else before i started covering the nba i loved watching the bulls like everybody if you weren't like a dedicated fan of any particular team michael jordan and those teams were such a phenomenon that they were popular in every market. Mm. Like the Bulls would be, the Bulls became a national team at that time. The way that the Lakers have been a national team for a lot of the last, you know, 20 years or whatever. Um, the Bulls were huge and they were so much fun. And who didn't love watching Jordan? Who didn't love 
you know, like you, you just became a Bulls fan by default. If you mm-hmm. didn't have a team or if your team you, that you had wasn't good, you became kind of a Bulls fan by default. And I was fascinated by Phil Jackson and I loved watching Scottie Pippen. Uh, I even loved Dennis Rodman back in the day <laughs> um, until I had to cover him during my Laker beat days. Um, <laughs> but so in the, in the, in the 90s, I, I think that's more when I started watching on a more regular basis. Um, so I didn't really grow up on basketball uh, as a as a staple. Mm. It's amazing to me how many sports writers' careers began, or not not began, but in their formative years, they worked at some sort of arena like you did, like the ball boy thing. I, I edited Steve Russian's podcast. He worked concessions at Metropolitan Field in Minneapolis, or Bloomington, rather. So it, 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 it's kind of funny how that starts, and you don't get tired of it, and it, it keeps you going. But growing up in Oakland, though, what was the music scene like? So you're growing up in like your your high school years, early '80s, late '70s when you're in in middle school. What's on the FM? <laughs> What's on the FM? Um, I was raised mostly by. If I were going to be raised musically, it's raised by KSJO. The SJO, obviously, for San Jose. KSJO. We had KOME, um, and. Uh, was a, there was a, a station that's long since been defunct called Camel. It was K-M-E-L. Uh, and actually their logo was a camel that looked a lot like Joe Camel from the <laughs> Camel Cigarettes later. Um, K-Fog. There, were, there was a ton of like just, you know, standard rock radio. And I grew mm-hmm. up on on just, you know, that, that was it. You know, uh, the Cars were my favorite group um, in high school. Um, you know, big on, you know, Tom Petty. And, you know, I had my journey phase, Boston, some Springsteen in there. Um, Prince was one of my first concerts that I went to in high school. You know, uh, it's the 80s, so we all loved Michael Jackson. Um, You know, grew up on just, you know, I mean, I I was either, like, on my radio, and I can remember, like, I had this, like, little, what they call transistor radio again. Mm -hmm. I'm dating myself. These little transistor radios, and I had one that I got when I was, I don't know, I must have been five, six years old. It ran on like a, you know, one of those little like um, the nine volt. Mm. And I'd walk around with that radius like to my ear. Like that was it. Like this is before, you know, before the Walkman, before everything else. Like I had this little radio. Anyway, top 40 or rock stations. And so there was like, it was a mix, like, you know, earth, wind and fire, um, all that stuff. And so I just remember listening to a ton of radio growing up. Um, but when I first started like really getting into like when you first like declare like, you know, like when you, you know, you're you're preteen to teen years and you, you know, your identity starts getting wrapped up in music. And so you kind of got to declare that like, you know, this is it's this genre or this band or whatever. And I was like all about the cars and maybe because uh, Rick Ocasek, the lead singer, was like this dorky, gangly white dude. And I identified with that somehow. And he ended up marrying a supermodel, so, you know, <laughs> Paulina Poroskova. So, um, so yeah, there's a good role model for me right there. But um, I loved the cars. Got into Genesis later. Um, you know, Van Halen, Tom Petty, you know, all the, all the standard, like, 80s, you know, arena rock. Um, and then, you know, some, some Michael Jackson and Prince and other stuff on the, on the side there, obviously. I'm super curious because in New Jersey, obviously people go nuts for Springsteen, Bon Jovi. Is there the kind of that similar thing in the Bay Area where like people like like go crazy for like Journey, Steve Miller, like that whole scene? It definitely is a thing. It's funny; it's still a thing. So when I tr- when I travel around the country, I always like try to tune to local radio um, just to see 
what the little subtle differences are. Like even now with you know Clear Channel and these obnoxious big media companies that own like ninety nine percent of all radio, so everything's pretty um, formulaic, unfortunately, and, and a lot the same. But when you're in the Bay Area, you still always hear more Green Day there than you will somewhere else. Hmm. When you're in LA, you always hear more Chili Peppers <laughs> on the radio than you will somewhere else. Like there's still like little inflection points. Um, in in the otherwise over formatted commercial radio world, but yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I was never a Grateful Dead guy, but you know, certainly you know the Bay Area was you know you know uh, you know ground zero for for Deadhead Um and yeah, Journey. Trying to remember who else was you know Bay Area based that really dominated. I mean, Steve Miller dominated for sure, but Steve Miller was just you know he was big in the uh, you know late seventies, early eighties. Trying to think of who who else would have uh, would have dominated uh, just the airwaves. Those are the yeah, those, I mean those are the those are the big ones for sure. Nice. All right. So you're in high school, eighties. Then you go to UC Davis. At what point do you realize that either in college or before college that hey you know maybe the sports writing thing is for me. The sports writing thing kind of coalesced in my head when I was still a junior in high school because by that time I'm fully like just engrossed in the Niners and a little bit of the A's and um, I've been you know reading the San Jose Mercury News sports section religiously every morning. Mark Purdy, who was the longtime sports columnist there, retired a couple of years ago, but he was my guy. That was his early days there still, and he was my like, I loved everything he wrote. You know, when he wanted to be poignant, he was poignant. When he wanted to be funny, he was funny. And I just really enjoyed his coverage. I enjoyed all the Niners beat writers there. And every morning getting up, reading that coverage, being really into it, being at that time of of your life where everybody's asking you, like, all right, where are you going to apply to school? And what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And, you know, like these these weighty, you know, uh, decisions that hang over. I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I'd been really advanced in math, and I always thought I was going to go down some kind of like engineering, computer kind of route, and then I kind of just burned out on all of that. I was pretty good in my English classes, and you know I, I thought I was an okay writer or whatever, and I thought, well, I'm reading the sports section every morning, and, and it hits me like, these people get paid to do this. That's stupid. That's ridiculous. There are people who are getting paid to go watch these games and then write about it. Like, I could do that. Um Fairly simplistic way of looking at it, to say the least, but that's kind of where it began. So when I, you know, I didn't apply to journalism schools because I think the sense was, I don't remember if this was conversations with my parents or other people, but just that that, that was kind of too narrow of a focus, that you go to college to, to learn, you know, a, a breadth of subjects and an, an entire, um, you know, a field of study, not just a narrow kind of um, job-focused degree and that's not to diminish anybody's journalism degrees like the people learn a lot of great things in journalism school I just didn't go that path so I went to UC Davis as an English major but my very first act on campus orientation week of my freshman year was walking down to the student newspaper the California Aggie and saying hey I want to be a sports writer who do I talk to and it just kind of started from there like they gave me an assignment hired me um, my first ever story was about the men's cross-country team <laughs> and um and it just kind of went from there. Hmm. So what kind of internships? I don't know if, in, if, if people were doing internships. They, they certainly weren't as important. But what yeah. kind of uh, formative professional experiences did you have during that time that helped you land your first job? No specific like formal internships. But um, 
in after my sophomore year, I think it was, I was sports editor of the college paper at that point. Um, I got a call out of the blue from the sports editor of the Sacramento Union, a paper that is now long since defunct. Uh, I think it went out in 1994. But he calls me up and says, uh, you know, we, you know I, don't, I don't remember how he knew who I was even, but they were looking for like a college student who was, you know, aspiring sports writer to come work during the summer doing shifts um, coding what we called agate. That's the scoreboard page. So the scoreboard page in the newspapers back in the day. So all the standings, all the box scores, all the schedules, all that stuff. Someone's got to put that stuff together and it comes through a wire service. And then you have to put all this obnoxious coding around it so that it looks the right way in the paper the next day. And so I got this job for the Sacramento union in the summer, um, basically as an agate clerk and which was really cool. Cause I was working in what to me was like this big professional newsroom. Um, and, you know, the, the Sacramento Union was a, a shadow of the Sacramento, you know, the, you know, tiny portion of, of the, the audience in Sacramento compared to the Sacramento Bee, which was the dominant paper. But to me, this was the big time. So um, I'm working there. Uh, I, I did that over the course of a couple of summers. And while I was doing that, they would occasionally throw me like an assignment. So they're like, go cover the beach volleyball tour stop down at, um, I think it was Discovery Park or whatever. Mm -hmm. Go cover the beach volleyball. Then I've covered some like amateur boxing, even though like, I hate boxing and I'm like morally <laughs> opposed and I'm like, I don't really want to do this. And they're like, yeah, that's nice, kid, but we're paying you, so go cover the freaking boxing match. And just all these like odd jobs. Uh, one of the first arena football league games, I think, I covered. Um, it, was, it, was, it, was, <laughs> it was an arena football league game in Sacramento. I can't remember which arena it was at. Maybe it was at Arco. And... Uh, it ended prematurely because I think it was the coach of one of the teams ended up in a fist fight with one of the founders of the league. <laughs> You'd have to look that up, but that happened. So it was a lot of like little odd jobs. But the, 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 but the, the great footnote is bigger than a footnote. The, the great uh, trivia note or fascinating uh, aspect of my time at the Sacramento Union was that I met there Mike Wise, who, became, who was hired to be the preps editor. So he was, he was like one of the people assigning me assignments like I, he was the one sending me out to like high school football games on friday nights and whatever to do these like you know short little game stories about high school football um so mike wise was there mike silver who now of course is you know one of the premier nfl writers um and and broadcasters mike silver and mike wise were both there uh they were they're a little older than me but uh both there when i got to the uh, to the sacramento union um and uh my best buddy from college, Dan Brown, who also worked with me at the college paper, he's now at The Athletic, he was at the Sounds of Mercury News for a long time, he came on board as well. So at one time, it was me, Dan Brown, Mike Wise, Mike Silver, I may be leaving somebody out, but like, oh, Tim Kuhn, who, like, a, a mm -hmm. phenomenal writer for, for ESPN Magazine. All these folks were there, like, I think all, all of us overlapped, um, but those were all people I worked with there, which is amazing. Like, the Sacramento Union was this dying, you know, after, I think it was an afternoon paper, or maybe they were... I take it back. They were the morning paper. The B had been the afternoon paper. And when the B went to mornings to go head to head, that was kind of the beginning of the end for the union. Mm. They eventually knocked them out. But, um, but yeah, this small staff, this, this, you know, struggling, you know, <laughs> metropolitan newspaper actually produced, um, a bunch of pretty, pretty decent guys. So you're at this first job. How does the move to LA come about? I, I went from Northern California to Southern California initially to work at a place called the Ventura County star, 
um, mid-sized paper. Most important thing that happened there is that I met my future wife, mm, um, important. who was also a reporter there. But at that time, I was still working in news. I had left sports for news um, soon after I got out of college, um, just wanted to do something different. And then I'm in Ventura for a couple of years, still doing news. But the sports editor of the Los Angeles Daily News in 1997 was a guy named Mike Anastasi, who had been my boss at the Davis Enterprise, the same city where UC Davis is. They had an opening on the Laker beat because their Laker beat writer, a guy named Mark Stein. Oh, casual. Who, who, just, <laughs> who just got inducted into the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. Props to my boy Stein. Um, I didn't even know Stein then. Um, so Stein had left the LA Daily News for the Dallas Morning News to go cover the Mavericks. Um, this is right around the time that, that Nash and Nowitzki are getting there. So there's the ties between those guys that... Uh, that, that actually the Athletic had a great piece where Nash and Davitsky were, were talking about Mark Stein and their experiences with him. Um, so Stein had left, and my old boss, Mike Anastasi, is at the Daily News, and he calls me up out of the blue and says, look, we've got an opening on the Laker beat. Shaq and Kobe had just gotten there a year before. He's like, I know you're out of sports right now, but what do you think? Would you have any interest in covering them? And, mm -hmm. and uh, the crazy thing about the story is that I actually paused like for a bit like i wasn't sure like i thought i had left sports behind i wasn't yeah. sure i was ever going to do it again and um for a variety of reasons that we don't necessarily need to go into uh, you, but i'm you know happy to talk about it if you want to but i i thought i was done with sports and so i actually had to think about it and then so that it wouldn't be um an awkward thing where this you know former boss and who i was you know you know friends with on some level he said listen if you are interested I'm just bringing you through the door. You're going to interview with the executive editor of the paper and the managing editor and the deputy sports editors, whatever. They're going to make the call. I'm just bringing you in. Um, but you got to, you still got to kind of get past these guys. And so, you know, after a few conversations with friends who basically said, what are you fucking nuts? Of course you <laughs> should do this. Um, I went down, interviewed. It all went very well. They hired me and, you know, the rest is history, as they say. But it, it I didn't know where that was going to go when I first did it. It was... Um, it was an, an amazing opportunity. Um, I'm forever in debt to Mike Anastasi and, and, and others at the Daily News for having opened that door. And I really honestly had no idea how that would go. Um, you know, the, the truth is I, I probably wasn't as prepared as I could or should have been. I think I was a good reporter. I was a good reporter and a good writer. Like they, He hired me and they hired me because they, they knew what my writing abilities were, my reporting abilities were. Um, at that time, especially for newspapers, it was less important that you were, you didn't have to be an expert on the NBA or the NFL or baseball, or whatever. You just had to be a really good journalist. Mm. And I think at that time I'd at least established myself in my late twenties as a pretty good journalist. You know, I, I, I could report, I could write, um, at a level that they thought that they needed. And if it didn't work out, I probably wouldn't have covered them for the next seven years. <laughs> um, so I think I acquitted myself. Okay. But early on, man, I was I was intimidated. I didn't mm. know what I'd gotten myself into, really. I had a I had a, I had an idea, um, but I hadn't been around the NBA that much um, as a reporter. And you know, there's just a, a lot I had to learn on the fly. And again, people I'm in debt to. Um, Scott Howard Cooper, who was the veteran uh, beat writer for the LA Times, who was incredibly generous with all of his knowledge and wisdom and showing me around as I'm traveling the country for the first time, like. You know, here's where you go. Here's where you stay. Here's where you rent a car. Here's where you take a cab. Uh, here's a, here are the good restaurants. Uh, here's how pregame access works. You know, here's just all the just, you know, the the unwritten rules of covering a team and just the logistics, all of that. Uh, if not for, for Scott and some other people, um, it would have been a lot tougher. And then when he moved off the beat and uh, 
Tim Kawakami came on the beat, and then Tim Brown after him. All of these guys, really, really talented mm. and very just good people who were, like I say, generous with their, their time and their information and, and always, you know, willing to help. And also just, I think, were good role models for me in the sense that, like, I would see the way they would go about things and the way they would cover things. And I'd always read their stories, you know, top to bottom the next day to see, you know, did I, you know, how did they do it? Did I do it as well as they did? What did they, what did they hit that I missed? Um, and it just, that, that competition, you know, you think of it, people think of it as competition, especially on a beat, but to me it was more about just um, having great examples and, and people to, to, to follow or to measure myself against. Um, and so those seven years, it was all just, just, you know, learning the whole time. I don't think people that, that are outside of the media understand how important to a beat writer's career the, the team success is. Kind of take us through what the difference in, in opportunities are between covering a losing team and a winning team. That's a really interesting question because I will say this. There's no doubt in my mind that the Lakers, you know, winning three championships, having Shaq, Kobe, and Phil Jackson um, being a, a, a huge source of national news and national interest absolutely raised my profile during that time. I mean, if the first job I had gotten uh, covering the NBA had been, you know, if my, if my former boss had landed in, say, Denver, you know, mm. decent mid-sized market, but the Nuggets were never good back then, and he'd say, hey, come cover the Nuggets, I could have spent those same seven years covering the NBA in, in a different market with a different team that was lower profile, and maybe, the, maybe I never get the chance to go to the New York Times. I don't mm. know. I, it's impossible for me to know. I, I have to believe that covering a, a perennial contender with three of the most important figures in the sport in Shaq, Kobe, and Phil had to help, right? Mm. Um, so in uh, 2004, when I landed the job at the New York Times, that process had begun months and months earlier. And, you know, I was on the radar probably in part because I covered the Lakers, albeit for the lesser paper in L.A. <laughs> like the L.A. Times was the, the dominant paper in L.A. I was at the L.A. Daily News. And... You know, like I say, the, the Laker beat that that profile provides a lot. But, oh, but so again, there's a lot of it's. You know, they say it's not who you know, or not it's not what you know. It's who you know. I mean, it's always a combination of the two. And so, Mike Wise has been, at that time has been at the Times for years. So he's one of my ins there. Um, Liz Robbins had been covering the Nets, and I got to know her a little bit because the Lakers and Nets, of course, played each other in the finals. I knew Chris Broussard a little bit. He was still at the Times at that time. And in fact, Chris Broussard was, was the national writer, the national NBA guy for the Times at the moment that I accepted the job. And I thought I was going there in part to also work with Chris. And I was really looking forward to that. And like a week after I got there, he says, yeah, I'm leaving for ESPN. <laughs> um, sorry. So I knew about the opening at the Times because of, of friends there. But I think my credentials to the sports editor, Tom Jolly, and, and others there were probably stronger because of the time I had spent covering this big time team in a big time market where there was, you know, a ton of competition for stories, um, and and where the subject matter resonated. Right. So, yeah, uh, I, being in LA, even uh, at the at the second biggest paper <laughs> in town, um, and and, uh, and by the way, LA Daily News, you know. Not to be trifled, not to not to be trifled with. It was definitely the smaller paper by circulation. It was definitely the smaller paper by staffing by a long shot. <laughs> However, let me just run down the list of of, of uh, LA Daily News alums who are covering the NBA right now. 
Uh, of course, Mark Stein, Gary Washburn, Hall of Famer Mark Casual. Stein, by the way. <laughs> Gary, Gary Washburn, Mark Spears, Ramona Shelburne, myself, who am I missing? Um, and some others have come. Like Billy Witz, who works for the New York Times uh, and, and uh, has, has done some NBA stuff along the way. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a bunch of folks. I'm, I'm probably missing people. But, um, but the Daily News had a great sports section and produced a, a lot of quality people. So I, I, I often kind of self-deprecatingly joke about just the Daily News being like the, the lesser paper in the market. Because, you know, we were yeah. the smaller paper. Uh, certainly didn't pay as well as the LA Times. Um, <laughs> But the jump from the LA Daily News to the Times to the New York Times, obviously, you know, it's 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 a lot of different elements. And and yes, I'm 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 sure that having covered a, a high profile team with the intensity around it uh, helped me out uh, quite a bit in getting the job and also being prepared to work in the New York market, which is its own weird animal. Right. How important do you think uh, was? Um, these internet websites for getting your own brand out there. Now, all of a sudden, it's not just your local paper. Now, people that at least have have, have access to it. And just kind of talk about, like, your small role in the in the development of online sports coverage. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I don't know what my role in that would be for sure. I mean, I, you know, in the, at the moment that I go from the Daily News to the Times, you know, uh, Bleacher Report, my current employer, Bleacher Report is, is still a few years away from even launching, right? Yahoo Sports as we know it uh, doesn't exist in 2004 when I first go to the, to the Times. Um, there have been various versions of CBS, sports.com and foxsports.com, and obviously ESPN had its website but wasn't nearly at the staffing level or the, or the evolution that it, that it would undergo later. SB Nation doesn't exist in 2004 when I go to the Times. Like, so much... Like today's sports media landscape is so dramatically different than where things were when I made what at that time was like what I thought was going to be the biggest leap of my career from the Daily News to the, to the Times. Um, by the time I take the Bleacher Report job in 2013, a lot of this stuff is now well established. Like, yeah, I was one of the first sports writers to go, you know, or, or I guess established journalists to go to Bleacher Report, but. You know, Adrian Wojnarowski had already gone to Yahoo. What six years before that, um, and and that at that time was considered a pretty dramatic leap to go from newspapers to to Yahoo Sports. What is yeah. Yahoo Sports? Yahoo. I thought that was a search engine. You know, that was like there you go shopping or you look like and like so at that time the idea that Yahoo was going to be a, a content producer and could hire big time sports writers to cover the NBA and the NFL. I mean, they hired Mike Silver, they hired Tim Brown on baseball, all these guys at that time. Like to me, those, those were the pioneers. Mm. Like those guys made the first big leap. That was the first wave. By the time I did it in 2013, yeah, it was considered um, a pretty big jump and a, and a little bit of a leap of faith to go from the times to, to Bleacher Report. But Online sports writing, online media had um, had gotten quite a bit more traction, I would say, by then. Um, but it was certainly, you know, there, there was there was some risk involved there. Mm. So you're what, like twenty six, twenty seven, when you make the move from Northern California down to L.A., right? Um, somewhere in that range. Okay. Yeah. Seven years later, you're in your thirties when you make the move to New York. My question is kind of about moving transitioning and adjusting to the differences in culture and do you think that you would have been ready for that in your mid-20s 
Yeah, it's funny. You grow up in Northern California and you right. just view L.A. and Southern California as this whole other universe, <laughs> which, you know, in a way it, it kind of is. Um, and there's there, there is a Northern California, Southern California thing. There's mm. definitely a, div- a divide there. Um, and so moving to L.A., my brother was already down there at that time. My older brother had moved to L.A. So I was I at least felt like I had some kind of like anchor there. And, and uh, L.A. hadn't you know thoroughly warped him. So I thought, <laughs> OK, uh, maybe L.A. is OK even though you grew up with this kind of image of it. You know what, like everybody out here in New York, New Jersey, whatever, or anybody anywhere else in the country, what they think of L.A., that's the same way we think of them when you grow up in the Bay Area. <laughs> so, um, so I did have to kind of get over that. Um, and it's a little different, but no, I mean, I enjoyed my time in Southern California. And, um, you know, the years I was coming to Lakers, I'm living in Hermosa Beach, two blocks from the sand. It was just gorgeous there. <laughs> and, you know, the weather... Uh, obviously great but you know it could get monotonous like i actually there were times i really wished it would just you know rain like a mother for you know three days because every day was just like yeah 72 and sunny well, maybe it's 68 and sunny oh the fog rolls in the fog rolls out it, you know drops a couple degrees increases a couple degrees. like it's, it's it's very much the same every day and so there are times when i wanted the variety and you know to watch what you wish for i end up in new york and now i have four seasons um I think that was the bigger jump. Like Southern California wasn't like that big of an adjustment. Um, LA to New York definitely was for all the obvious reasons. You know, there's, there's weather and just lifestyle. You know, we lived in Hoboken for the one year, but we've been in Brooklyn ever since. Um, it's just, a, it's a different vibe. It's a different pace. It's a different intensity, but, um, but you know, I love it. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, I still love California and there are aspects of it I miss, but uh, I've, I've absolutely loved living here for the last 15 years um wouldn't trade it for the world i think i adjusted pretty quickly i mean i think the the media environment's a little bit more intense you know it was a competitive beat on the lakers the Knicks beat was competitive but also sometimes you know kind of political and kind of <laughs> kind of crazy and i won't go beyond that but um but it was it was definitely a little bit uh different intensity that i had to get used to so when you make the switch to Bleacher Report in 2013, uh, I mean, a lot, as you said, people had kind of made the switch to these online platforms before. What kind of prompted your move? Was it a desire to do more work in the digital space? You saw where things were going? or So they kind of cold called me. It was actually an email. So I guess they cold emailed me. But I got this email out of the blue one day from the recruiter who's, who said, hey, and the, the, the guy was based in San Francisco at the time, but he says, I'm coming to New York. And I'd like to talk to you. And the email wasn't very specific about what he wanted to talk to me about. So I thought, <laughs> are they just trying to get more publicity for this 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 website that was still, you know, like it was it was well known. It had a following, but um, I didn't know much about Bleach Report at that time. And I thought maybe they were just trying to reach out to get you know people in mainstream media to either notice them, write about them. I, I didn't know what it was going to be. So I said, sure, I'll meet you for coffee. So we meet for coffee and, and I hear, you know, now he's telling me, well, we just hired Mike Freeman to cover the NFL. And Mike Freeman at that time had just, uh, he had made the move from CBS Sports to, to Bleacher. But Freeman had, had been at the New York Times years before that, but we didn't overlap. We knew of each other, but I didn't know him. Um, we just hired Mike Freeman. We just had this huge draft show. It was a great success. We're going to do all this stuff. And so the pitch to me was, listen, you come over here, you cover, you'll be a national NBA writer. So, you know, again, I wouldn't have to be strapped in the, you know, I've been covering the Knicks for basically nine years at that point um, with a brief detour to the Nets. But um, it was a chance to be a national writer and they were pitching this bigger role of 
you're, you'll be a writer, but you'll also do all this video. Um, at that time, they were talking about how they were going to launch a channel on Sirius XM <laughs> VR radio. Um, that happened. <laughs> and that happened. And I did have a show on it for a while before it all disappeared. And so the, the intrigue to me at that time was I could expand just my, my horizons as, as a journalist or as an NBA, you know, uh, uh, media person. Like I had always been in a very narrow role and it was, it was the role I wanted. I never, I I was never looking to be uh, a TV person. I had never looked to go to say ESPN or anything. I just, I was, you know, as far as I was concerned, I'm a reporter, I'm a writer. That's what I do. Um, I don't have a face for TV. (laughs) Didn't think I really necessarily had the, 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 the sensibility for radio or anything else. I had, I had, I had kind of defined myself very narrowly. And then at that point in my career, I've covered, been covering the NBA for 16 years at that time when Bleacher Cubs calling. I've been in the, in the business overall over 20 years at that time. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, well, wait, you know, how many opportunities are there to really kind of just shake it up a little bit, try something mm. different? Like I'll, I'll still have the, you know, everything I've accrued, all of the experiences, all of the knowledge – um, all of my improvement evolution as a writer and reporter on the NBA, I take with me, but I get to completely redefine, you know, not completely redefine, but, but dramatically redefine what my day-to-day role would be and, and diversify it too. And, you know, not only was that valuable because, hey, it's an ever-changing media market and the more things you can do, the more valuable you are, the better off you are. You know, if you can do, if you can write and you can do TV and you can do radio and you can do all, all these things, yeah, okay, that, that's great for job security or just to, for marketability. But I also just thought it was a chance to learn some new things. You know, mm-hmm. like it's, it's your mid-career and you think how many more opportunities are there going to be where someone's going to give you the chance to do some things you've just never done before. And I'd had a couple, you know, a you know, few TV appearances a year. Somebody comes calling, says, hey, we want you to come in studio and talk about the Knicks, talk about the Lakers or whatever. I was on a couple of Sports Century you know, the precursor to 30 for 30 was those sports century mm. documentaries. And I, I did some of those. So like I could sit in front of a camera. I don't think I was good in front of a camera. Mm. And so now these people are telling me, come here and you're going to do a ton of video. And I thought, I mean, this is a chance to do something different. If I, I could stay at the New York Times the rest of my career and I would absolutely be totally satisfied with my career and I would enjoy every minute because the New York Times is, is an amazing institution and I loved being there. And it was very, very hard to leave. But I was not going to get the chance to do radio and video and all the NBA TV stuff because NBA TV, of course, run by Turner, which also on Bleach Report at that time um, and still does. So it was just that's what it was, the mm-hmm. intrigue of all these other opportunities. And, on, and all of that came to pass. We don't do the video anymore. But my first few years there, I did a freaking ton of video and I got a hell of a lot better at being on camera. That was valuable. And I've done a lot of NBA TV over the last six years um, and greatly enjoy doing that. Um, doing BR radio, you know, I had the, the two hour show weekly, first with Ethan Skolnick and then the second year with Noah Kozlov before Bleacher Report Radio went away. That not only opened the door to me now being kind of in the, the uh, you know, guest rotation, sub rotation for NBA radio, but it, it gave me a better uh, grasp of how to do that job, which translated to my podcast. So, like, I don't think my podcast or I would be as good at doing the podcast, however good I might be. I don't know how to gauge that, but I think I'm a better <laughs> podcaster than I would have been otherwise if I didn't have all the radio experience and, and the video experience. And I wouldn't have had any of that if I hadn't made the jump from the Times to Bleacher. So heading into the 2020s, what are you hoping to accomplish? I mean, the the, the landscape's always uh, always changing, but... What do you want to do? I mean, like, what's like the next step for Howard Beck? 
Wow. Um, also a great question. Um, I, you know, I've never been one that thinks that far ahead. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, fairly, you know, uh, like, uh, I don't want to say myopically focused, but I, I, I tend to kind of just tackle the next thing. Um, you know, I didn't know I was, you know, six years ago, I didn't know I was going to have a podcast. So, um, you know, six years ago, I didn't know, or seven years ago, I didn't know I would ever, you know, be a radio host, uh, for a time. Um, so a lot of these things that I've done that I, that I'm proud of and that I've really enjoyed, you know, I, I could not have foreseen them. Um, you know, in, in 1996, I couldn't have foreseen that I was going to ever become an NBA beat writer, <laughs> much less do that for, you know, 20 something years and counting. Um, so I don't look, uh, the, the, one of the great things about Bleach Report is that it is constantly evolving. Um, and they're constantly pushing the envelope. They're always looking for the, the next, uh, you know, the next wave, the next iteration, the, the next innovation. Um, and they're, they've been better than almost anybody at figuring out where the market is going before it goes there in terms of the, you know, I say the market, I mean, sports fans, what do they want? What are they looking for? Um, and Bleach Report has been incredible at anticipating that meeting that need and, and getting out in front and, and then delivering. And so while my job is, a, is in fundamental ways, the same as it's always been, I hang out at NBA games. I look for good stories. I report them and I write them. Occasionally, I pontificate and and, and you know you know turn out a podcast here and there. Um, you know, I work in an environment where it's it's heavily innovative, and so I know that even you know, just as I couldn't have anticipated um, some of the kinds of videos that we did or Facebook Live shows that we did, draft shows that we did the podcast, I, even, just as I couldn't anticipate those, I probably can't tell you what the next cool thing I'm going to end up doing is, but I guarantee you sometime in the next, you know, couple of years, um, and, and however long they'll have me, um, I will probably do some other cool shit for Bleacher Report that I couldn't tell you what it is right now, but after I do it, I'm gonna be like, yeah, this is what I came here for. Um, I love being able to do this stuff. And I do have, you know, a couple things in my, in the back of my head that I, I think would be interesting kind of, um, intersection of, of, uh, of reporting and video and and um, and just some some off the wall ideas I have that I'll maybe if I pitch to the right person we'll we'll pull off we'll see, but um, but other than that it's it's mostly just you know in this business that there's journalism writing it's it's far more art than science and so you're you're you've never written the perfect story everything we write we're all neurotic writers we all go back later and go like why the fuck did i do that right that way i should have done it this way um you're never happy with with anything you turn in so there's it, it, the point being it's 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 a constant evolution so i know that there's always more room to grow even just as a writer um and certainly as a podcaster um and so those being my two basic staples you know most weeks, I'm just always just trying to keep getting better at that. Um, get great guests on the pod, you know, do a great show, have, you know, have fun, just, just produce stuff that people are, are enjoying. I mean, that's the bottom line. My big thanks to Howard Beck for coming on the program today. You can follow him on Twitter at Howard Beck, and you can listen to the full 48 podcast. But as always, you can read him on Bleacher Report. He's on NBA TV. He's on. He's with us at SiriusXM NBA Radio. He's everywhere. 
Um, great follow on Twitter, so be sure to check in on that. He's always got great, great people on his podcast. He's at the commissioner of the NBA, so if it's good enough for Adam Silver to come on, it's, you know, it's good enough for you to listen to. Anyway, that's the plug. You can get in contact with this show. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Denny underscore Gallagher. You can follow me on Instagram at Denny Gallagher. You can follow the podcast, Later Podcast, on Instagram. We're there. Or if you want to shoot me an email, the email is laterpodcast at gmail.com. Once again, my big thanks to Howard Beck. Check out his stuff. And on that note, let's cue up the boys from Tom, Dick, and Harry. And until next time, later. Later.